Hello, this is Christopher Brick, and welcome back to Intervals, the public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. Joining us again is Dr. Susan Daly Swearingen, here to talk through a bit more about her lecture on the Confederate flag in transnational contexts and perspectives. Uh, Susanna is going to be answering your questions as well as ours, and working with her for this set of paired episodes was a real highlight of season two for everyone around here. They're just some of those conversations that teach you so much and illuminate the content and the historian behind them uh, in equal parts and in equally meaningful ways. And for me, uh, this interview was certainly one of those. I hope so for you too. Enjoy. Dr. Susanna Diley Swearingen, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you. I am so honored to be here. And we're honored to have you. I'm always honored to be in the company of my incredible colleague and co-host for Intervals, Professor Carrie Ann Hi, Nakoda, thank joining you. us from you the always University give of Colorado, me such a great Denver. Welcome, and I'm Marianne, really looking welcome. forward to our conversation, so thanks for that. Um, Susanna, we're so <laughs> delighted to have you here on our Intervals podcast, and we thought we'd, well, we enjoyed your lecture, and we thought we'd start off thank by you. asking you to give us a bit of a brief intellectual autobiography. So in other words, please tell us what brought you to the topic that you presented to us. Um, it, it is an outgrowth of something that I've been working on um, with my first book that's coming out um, about Civil War memory and about the ways in which that shapes contemporary politics. And like many people, I watched what happened on January 6th. And it was it was really that freeze frame moment at the man with the Confederate flag in the, in the halls of the Capitol. For the first time in American history, we had breached the walls of the Capitol with a Confederate flag that was just alarming. Um, being from the South, I've, I did my graduate education in New Hampshire, and I saw so many Confederate flags there. And it was just perplexing to me. What can that possibly mean to you? So for a long time, I've been thinking about this idea of uh, portable symbols and what happens to their context and meaning when you take them out of their, out of their origin space. Um, and then I have to admit, I read the wonderful book, um, Confederates in the Attic. And he has a section about the international uses of Southern memorabilia, I guess is the way I would put it. And so I thought, wait a minute, it's not just New Hampshire's flying this weird flag. It's, it's internationally. Okay, I need to know more about that. So yeah, that the underlying issue is what does it mean to take a symbol out of its original historic and geographic context and either repurpose it or use it with no, no idea of what it meant? What happens to it? We decided to focus on global approaches to U.S. slash American history. And I thought your lecture really fits very well into that theme. So you don't have to explain how it uh, influenced or affected your work because it was very obvious. But maybe tell us a bit about this international, global, transnational component of the material that you presented to us. I think it's interesting that there are 
um, many studies about individual groups of international participants in the Civil War. And I think the standard uh, teaching the survey course answer about the Civil War is uh, the major empires stayed neutral. It was mostly a contained American war, which doesn't get into um, individuals living in those nations who were not neutral. So what I think is needed at this point, and there are some studies, is an overview of just the extent to which it's not just the Scots-Irish and the Irish, it's not just the Germans, that somehow, uh, whether it's an ex post facto connection to the Civil War or it was through ancestry and heritage, this this feeling of, of having links to to this conflict is is far right. more global than than we're even currently understanding. And yeah, it, it feels like too though, because the United States doesn't currently have a, a consensus view of everything, you can understand how confused the the interpretations and the uses of it are by international people who aren't even necessarily part of that conversation. You were in New Hampshire and saw Confederate flags, but that can also be true in in Budapest. It can also be true in Moscow because because of what um, the resonance that this has and the connection that it has to white supremacist violence and politics. Um, it is being invested with all this power from plenty of folks who have never been to the United States, have nothing to do with America, but want to connect themselves to this particularly virulent form of transnational right-wing politics that we're seeing at the moment. So to me, it feels like this is very much a living story you're telling. I mean, it really comments on the present, and it's part of this process that um, is binding together uh, people like Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin and Jair Bolsonaro and um, uh, even Narendra Modi yeah. uh, in, in India. I, I couldn't possibly agree with you more. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and this is the type of history that I enjoy telling, the kind of lived history, I guess, is Robert Penn Warren's phrase, um, that, that stays generationally relevant to people um, because, yeah, I, I think that what I've given you in this topic is an example of how history is used to shape the present. And that is, that is useful. That is something we can do something about now in terms of reeducating people about symbols and things. In terms of the, the confluence, you called it, and I think that's a great word, of the Nazi symbol and the, um, Confederate flag. That's a really <laughs> that's a really dangerous and confusing thing for me. I think unfortunately that we've gotten so reductive in what symbols of those two different eras mean that they run the risk of losing any of their actual power. They don't have the texture of what it meant to be under Hitler's regime. The, the swastika being conflated with the Confederate flag denies both of those evils their own individual and specific power. And they become generic symbols of, of hate. But the, 
the real nuance of them and the, the ways in specific ways that they were used to promote a system of slavery or a system of, of genocide get get lost. And I think that there is something that more discussion around what does that actually mean when you are a neo-Nazi in Germany who gets the Confederate flag tattoo on your wrist? What what do you think that means? And oftentimes it's a very confused answer, um, ranging from the interviews I've read from I don't know, or well, those people seem to kind of think like me, or it's just a substitute for something else. They're not actually referencing the American Civil War. And they're they're doing in a way, it's so, it sounds weird to say it this way, but they're doing damage to the symbol itself because it already has so much potency as a representation of an evil system. And they're diminishing it. I hope well, that I makes sense. We'll jump in here and, and just say, um, you, towards the end of your lecture, thought you ended it in a very um, interesting way. And it was a good for me, you summed up, you said the flag, as in the Confederate flag, will never signify uh, the same thing to all people. And certainly, I, I agree with you in that. And your lecture really did illustrate um, that to be true. But then I'll just throw in, um, or I just wanted to talk to you about um, the fact that all symbols are like that, right? So are there, is there the counterfactual, right? Or is there the counterexample, rather? Um, I think all symbols, or as you say, portable symbols, are up for interpretation. And, and the American flag, for instance, means many different things to many different people, depending on your um, identity and the way you've been treated in the nation state, for instance. So just to give you a chance to maybe um, talk about that, about symbols as these um, unstable um, entities that are also very powerful, right? In, its, in their instability, I think that makes them powerful well, because they can mean so many different things to so many different right. people while still... Uh, creating a sense of shared um, identity. I think that's true. And of course, you're right that symbols take on these layered and textured meanings. And, you know, for example, the Irish soccer team that I talk about that waves the Confederate flag as because to them it means rebellion. And, okay, that's fine. That is one aspect of it. I guess what I'm arguing for is you can't cherry pick the meanings. If you want to add context and layers, that's fine. But you do have to at least acknowledge the historical origin that the, the previous iterations of meaning in these. Uh, somebody couldn't go out and use the swastika today and pretend that it didn't have the context for somebody else. I, I'm not sure how I phrased it, but there's, there's this tendency to say, well, it's fine. You can mean whatever it wants to you, but it doesn't mean that to me. And therefore it's okay. Well, but no, it, it, it's not. You, it's not an insular, it's not a, a solitary engagement with something. Our engagement with these symbols, when we display them publicly, obviously have a public effect. And it's not always the one that you hope will happen. 
So for white supremacists, sure, displaying the Confederate flag means absolutely this system of uh, one, one race on top and the other being subservient. But to other people, I think it's important to legitimately acknowledge that there are some people who feel like, no, that represents my ancestor. Great. And it can represent your ancestor, but you also have to acknowledge that it represents a system of uh, subordinating another race. Does that make sense? You can have your own interpretation, but you do have to be cognizant and willing to admit that it's got all these other layers for other people as well. And in the Confederate flag, as the the proponents of continuing to have it fly, uh, will tell you it's about it is about a way of life. And unfortunately, so many of them are not willing to admit or grapple with the issue that that way of life is predicated on the system of, of, of abusing, torturing, and killing other people. Because that's, that's, that's trickier. Um, I think this is really important when it comes to the issue of monuments versus memorials. And so for a long time, I've been trying to work on a definition about that. And I do think there is a difference. So a monument, for example, particularly given the way I have a background in teaching architectural history, so I love to talk this stuff. Um, yeah, I love hearing about where it. You know, I mean, so, yeah, <laughs> please go there. Um, okay. Um, particularly the way it's cited, right? If you, if you give it a place on your courthouse square, or if you give it a place, and in a lot of these were positioned in old slave markets and, and other places of significance, you're saying something about that. It is a tacit endorsement of a particular point of view. It's not history. Monuments are not history. They represent the, the literal physical man manifestation of a point of view. A memorial is different. Because I don't think a memorial is trying to curate anybody's experience in the same way. I feel like it's not as much. It can be, but more often than not, it's not an endorsement of please think this way. And we're going to give you all the visual contextual clues you need to come to the same conclusion about that person or thing that we have. It's a place of reflection. This thing happened go think about what that means and try to frame it for yourself. There is a desire for some people to have the Confederate flag be a memorial and, and have that limit its meaning. It's about remembering our ancestors. It's about preserving our history. And it's not. It's more like a monument because it is the promotion of a particular cause and a particular way of life and a particular worldview. So what, tell us a bit more about some thoughts of, that you've had as you have been working on these issues um, for so long. So someone might ask, so now what? Or what are you proposing? Or what should we do? Or we recognize the complexity, we recognize the um, negative effects these things can have, these memorials to a past that is troubled and violent. 
right? So what next? And I, I just don't want people to hear it and just put their hands up and say, okay, well, this is just so complicated. There's nothing we can do. We will never, we will never um, agree. So what can we do? Are you saying we can't use symbols? Maybe we can talk a bit in, in, in this Q&A about positive ways you've seen symbols being used or let's just think about other things or another path or options. What, what would you, what do you tell your students? Um, I tell my students to get comfortable with complexity. It, it is, it's so predictable to me at this point for someone to, to walk up to me and ask me, Abraham Lincoln, good guy or bad guy? how on earth do you answer that question, <laughs> right? He was a human being with, with foibles and, and virtues. Mm-hmm. And he was involved in a system which asked him to be flexible, right? Why are we expecting any less from the symbols of, of that period? Um, so part of my answer to people who say this is so complicated is, I'm sorry, but you have to get comfortable with that. Stop expecting easy answers for complicated situations. That's, it's just dishonest is all. Um, What to do is a great question. And it's one of the things that I've been thinking about since, um, since Charlottesville. I have to tell you, you were talking about international confusion and um, reactions to these things, particularly after Charlottesville. I was horrified as, as most of us were that's yeah, it's just beyond my imagining that that's what happened. But I was listening to the BBC actually, and someone came on and (laughs) they made this case that, well, you know, the, uh, the Klan was an offshoot of the democratic party. So really we should be blaming Hillary Clinton for this. And I just lost my mind. I was like, what are you talking about? So I immediately went to uh, the people in my department and said, we've got to have a conference. I can't take it. I'm, I'm going to lose my ever-loving mind if we don't have a conference to address what on earth happened and who the Klan is and all of those, those questions because people are confused. I'm shocked that they're confused, but I grew up in Florabama where these were realities of of life. So, yeah. Um, So I actually do think that there is education to be done. I know people don't like hearing saying that, but there are ways to do it. I mean, there are more public dialogues that need to happen. And I think there are also a way to not hide the monuments and not hide the symbols, but put them in a space where there can be more independent thinking about what that possibly means. So I was going to ask, um, Susanna, if we can go um, more deeply into the international context, because I think that's very um, interesting, um, thinking about how American history, American culture has traveled and changed, transformed, um, I think it's being interpreted, as you show in your lecture, in different ways according to the needs of the place that it lands, right? So um, if we think about other, 
having lived in Europe myself, you know, I'm thinking about other ways that the United States and um, has been understood or imported um, overseas. And it's often in a corporate sense. So what you were talking about with the Confederate flag, it's not necessarily commercial or corporate, but it's McDonald's, right? And what that's meant to um, people in France and recently what it's meant um, after the embargo in Russia, for instance. So how do you, have, have you thought about that? I, I work on material culture and I'm, so I'm really interested in how symbols are, are used and reinterpreted as they move across national boundaries. But what are the other ways in which America's history has um, been interpreted and used abroad? Well, I think most relevant to this discussion is just the the absorption of the lost cause myth into the international stream. Um, so it's Tony Horowitz's book that outlines this. It's not in my lecture, but I just thought that it was absolutely fascinating to find out that uh, people in Japan are crazy for Gone with the Wind, that this is a really important film for them because in some way, Scarlett O'Hara's experience of starting all over again in a, in a place of almost scorched earth represents their resilience and represents their ability to pick up and go on. So I think it's fascinating that right. A, Gone with the Wind gets treated by an awful lot of people as history. That that was what it was like. And it, it is history, but it's history of a different era. It's history of the people trying to reframe the South. Um, but I think a lot of what I see is people who are aware of what the symbol means and what what those kinds of cultures mean and are willing to adopt it because of that part and then kind of conveniently not talk about the rest of it. So the, in the lecture, I talk about the wall in, um, in Ulster and you've got these, these beautiful images of these uh, Confederate um, at the moment. I know it's Lee and I think that it's also, I can't remember the other two people on it. I'm sorry. Um, but the Confederate leaders. And it says, for the glorious men who fought for or who fought for the South in the War of Northern Aggression. So even there, they've already adopted the Southern name for the war. They've taken a point of view, which is fascinating to me. But it doesn't present the other side in any way. And so I can imagine being, you know, a 12-year-old walking up to that who hasn't studied American history yet, and it's not part of the national dialogue that I'm aware of, um, going, oh, these must be really great guys, right? They fought, they're, they're us. And they went to this other country and they, they fought for this thing against, against a power that was oppressing them. Wow, these must be really heroic men. I guess my my short answer is that it gets in it gets imported to other places in in bits um, without the whole framing mechanism, so that you understand well what was the aggression that the North was was posing on the South, trying to get them to behave according to the Constitution and behave like 
fellow states? Yeah. Okay. Well, that would color your understanding of that mural. Um, but I, I have to say what's interesting to me about this also is just the amount to which the Confederacy is not alone or unique in this, but relied on tropes from other cultures as well. So they began as somebody trying to be a blended international thing. Um, the quotation from mm -hmm. Governor Moore about the planters imagining themselves as, as gallant knights of old, I think that's how many people still perceive them. Uh, I know having grown up in the South, I'm embarrassed to admit, but in my education, that's how I was taught. Well, so it's and a, I had a romanticized version of understand European history imported to the American South and then re-exported uh, back to uh, to Europe, which is interesting. I mean, there was a striking, I mean, it's, it's a detail, but a detail in your yeah. lecture that I found very interesting that these reenactors were fighting to all be on the Confederate side, which we know lost in, in that particular conflict. So, I mean, there is something about the, the, this romanticization of this and the way it's captured people, uh, across the globe, their imagination, right? There ha there's something about this particular moment in U.S. history that it, it's unlike any other. Yeah, I think for the Europeans, it's because the, the Confederacy, the, the leaders of the Confederacy were such conscious imitators of European aristocracy. So even in the, the years, in the antebellum period and the years before, yeah you had the, the science of plantations being sent off for education in England. And you had this very conscious trying to, <laughs> I, I think in a way say, hey, we're just as good as you are. Look, we have our, we have our states too, and we don't have we're titles right. per no, se. No, well, I mean that- But I'm every that bit as good is as exactly Like in my research, what I victim. have said is that um, we, we have this idea that the American Revolution was fought because the the American revolutionaries did not like um, European aristocratic culture. But I think it's it can be said you can argue the opposite, which is these are um, people, individuals who did because of their birth could not ex it could not enjoy the lifestyle of the aristocrat in Europe. So they come to America and they try to replicate an aristocratic lifestyle in Europe. They can't. Um, own guns, they can't shoot uh, animals because they don't own the land, but they're reenacting in their own imagination. And I think most, uh, the, you see this the most in the South for, for amongst the elites. Um, uh, and so I, it makes total sense to me that it would be recognizable yeah. to the Europeans, this lifestyle. No, I think you're totally right about the revolution. That's the way I've always read it, especially Hamilton. I was like, if he could run for king, he absolutely would have. You talk about the founding, right? The American founding. And I just, the, one of the most insoluble challenges, I think this also goes back to sort of contested meaning and, and, and instability, uh, is this question about treason? I mean, to me, it's like no question at all. That represents like the most uh, abject kind of disloyalty you can you can manifest, and that's before you get into the business of 
the regime that those people were right. trying to perpetuate. Um, uh, and yes, and yet, I mean, that is a very credible perspective to many people to this day that 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 somehow it communicates rather patriotism, patriotic loyalty to a certain kind of vision of America mm -hmm. that was carried up the steps of the Capitol in on on one six twenty twenty one and 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 into the building itself, um, you know, one hundred and fifty six years after Appomattox. Um, that settlement, I guess. It's still pretty unsettled, and the and and the the, the 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 Confederate flag seems to me a really good way of tracing just how unsettled that remains. Yeah, I completely agree with you, and I I'm glad you used the word origin because I think a lot mm -hmm. of this goes back to our national origin myths. So I I wind up teaching that period of history in survey courses too, and and we talk a lot about well was. Sam Adams a patriot or was he a criminal, right? He, he did all of these things or he supported all of these things mm -hmm. because he felt justified that they were under a system of oppression and therefore they had to throw that off. And in a way, the results of the revolution vindicate him. Okay, so the country won, we start a new country and therefore his actions are de facto patriotic. But if he had lost, if if we were still subject to the English crown, mm -hmm. how would we look at Sam Adams then? And this is the case with the Confederates, or the Confederates want you to make, I should say, that they too were fighting for their own more perfect union. And they felt that the, the North had become despotic. They used terms like an outside uh, influence, that they're being run by a foreign power. So to them, they're merely preserving the, the ideals that were promised them by the original founding fathers. And there's a whole area of scholarship that tracks just the use of revolutionary language to justify both the Northern and the Southern cause. So I think it's about reframing things for... Um, for the people that you're trying to inspire to go fight. And I genuinely believe that many of these people in the South thought that they were being the ultimate kind of patriots. I think going back to this global perspective, um, the Irish use of the Confederate flag is a very good way to think about this and to, to make it more complex, right? Because if you think about the Irish um, position vis-a-vis -vis the British Empire, and trying to um, escape the yoke of, of colonization in that sense, then you could right. kind of it, it actually you're go, you're moving forward in time to understand the past, but I, I think that actually helps you understand what the Southern uh, Confederates in the in the Civil War were thinking, right? So so thinking and mentioning, and if you if you learn about Irish history vis-a-vis -vis the British Empire, right. that does add another wrinkle to um, this, this debate that we're having or this conversation that we're having about how you can think about freedom and oppression and how this flag has, is, is the constant in, in the, over change over time, is constant in these different right. 
events, historical moments. Right. And I think that it's important also to think about what time the Irish who are expressing an allegiance to the Confederacy are doing that. It's, you know, for me today, I'm of like everybody else in the South, I am of Scots-Irish heritage, and my family's been here for 400 years. So it means something to me academically, but it's not, it's not felt Whereas the Irish who were fighting for the Confederacy and for the Union at that point, they're relatively new enough to this nation that that those loyalties and those questions and those problems are still part of their lived internal experience. So all that you've just said is even more relative to the question when you think about it in that historical context. I wonder what nation... Is it that is being invoked when somebody carries mm. that flag up on 162021? Because it is this, you know, to uh, um, people on the American far right, in the white nationalist uh, militia and things, I mean, where this symbology is rampant. Yeah. Uh, I'm never quite sure what nation. You know, I mean, we call them white nationalists, right? Like, what nation are they talking about? Um, Well, when we come to questions like this, I the very first thing I always do is point everybody to Benedict Anderson, imagined communities. Um, And I think that's what this is. It's a fictitious nation. It's a nation that that from my personal experience that people still hold grudges over. It, It exists because there are still adherents to the cause. So the nation they're talking about are the people, and you mentioned loyalty earlier, that was all over the Confederate propaganda. Um, just very quickly, what else? I The other things I write about, I write about a small county in northwestern Alabama that tried to stay neutral during the war. And they are attacked over and over and over again for disloyalty. Disloyalty to the Confederate cause, disloyalty to their neighbors, disloyalty, disloyalty. And it goes to this question, disloyalty to what? You you are engaged in a war that is trying to create a nation, but it doesn't exist yet. You are not an independent nation simply because you say you are. So with the results of the war, there are genuine segments of people who believe there will be a second coming. There will be another chance the South will rise again. And the nation they're referring to, I think, is both the one that they believe should have existed and the one that will when the Confederacy finally gets its its proper due. It's it's magical thinking, I guess, is the best way to explain it. Just before we, we say goodbye, we thought we'd give you a chance to talk about the, speaking of food, your most memorable food experience while on uh, the road doing your research. Uh, it, it is both not a new experience, but just such a profound one every time I encounter it. Um, a lot of my research uh, involved going to North Carolina. And uh, if you have been through there, you know that the best food comes from gas stations. I I tell people this and they look horrified, but, you know, some mom and pop has just decided to bring in home cooking to sell at the gas station to make a little extra money. And when I get to the land where boiled peanuts are a thing again, 
I am home. It is just heaven. And you can get them Cajun spice. You can get them regular. It does not matter. Boiled peanuts are about the greatest invention man has ever. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I sound like right. somebody so, else. I don't so mean that. Southern foodways. <laughs> oh, yeah. you, you no, going back yeah. to I mean, the right, global, is, though. Is it a very deep south thing? So I've it's never a Chinese had, delicacy. So, is, I, I'm, know, like, I mean, I I'm not have, Chinese, I I, but um, I know boiled peanuts is a yeah. big thing in China. It's a great snack. It's delicious. <laughs> So that that's like there again. <laughs> I and I did not know that. I, I did not know that. I thought we were very clever and came is up it, with that. I mean, are they really south. just peanuts that you boil? I mean, is is it that simple, or is there a more elaborate no. preparation? Yeah. So there's it. Yeah. There's well, at least in there. the at least in the southern tradition, you mm -hmm. have to have fat back because fat backs in everything. And you leave the peanut in the shell. You don't want to just get these peanuts. I can't believe I'm talking like the Paula Deen or something. But um, you leave the peanut in the shell. You put it in a crock pot with a ton of salt because everything we eat made with a ton of salt. Some fat back and some spices if you choose. But really the fat back and the salt is enough. And you just let it go slow. And then the next day the, the shell just kind of peels away easily. The peanuts on the inside still have a bit of a crunch. But they're but they're soft and they just explode in your mouth like a grape and they're delicious. And it is a salt delivery system. Oh, and I, I'm, I'm a savory palated person myself. I mean, as a oh. child, even I never cared about dessert. I always wanted, you know, more olives, more cheese, like anything <laughs> that, that could give me that salt hit. And I'm still sort of like that. Um, I also, I also, I also fancy a cocktail now and then. And so, yeah, my final, our final question, I just, it, it builds up carry in about beverages, right? So, I mean, what, do you have a memorable beverage story from, from Florabama or anywhere else that you've been to do your research? <laughs> It's funny because it's an ongoing fight with me up here, uh, living in the North for so long. Why don't, okay, this is, I'm not going to put it in accusatory sense. People outside of the South do not seem to understand what sweet tea is. So when you order sweet tea in the North, it just means that extra sugar has been added to the point where it's, it's, you can't drink it. In the South, what it means is that you've doubled the strength mm. of the tea as well, and that you've got this lovely harmony between the lemon, which is necessary, the sugar, and the strength of the oh, tea. And it's it's the house wine of the South. But it is. Yeah, I mean that's that's Dolly Parton's wonderful line in Steel Magnolias, yep. right? She's like, it's the house wine of the South. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I knew you'd get it. Yes. I love that movie. I yeah, love that I movie. Too. And yeah, I love this lecture and this QA and the work you contributed you. to this this um, season. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, by the way, and before we let you go, I, I did not mention the title of your book at the beginning, and I had meant to do that. Rebel, Rebels, Race Resistance and Remembrance in the Free State of Winston. That's forthcoming from University of Kentucky Press. Everybody go. You can probably, once it comes out, buy it at that website or directly from University of Kentucky Press. Um, Dr. Susanna Diley Swearingen. Thank you so Thanks. much. And Dr. Terrian Yokota. Thank you as well for joining me once again.
Thank you. What a pleasure. And that's a wrap for this week. On deck for next time, we are really excited to be joined by Andrew Marion of the University of Mississippi, who's going to be lecturing on displaced persons and post-war racial capitalism. Andrew's going to be a rock star. That's how much his work impressed us. He's going to be sharing it with you and with all of us next week. Be here. We'll catch you then.